one of my doctors said, he said, I've never seen so much structural damage to a face without damage to the brain and the eye at the same time. So he said, I can't actually tell you if it was the accident itself that caused this or the care that you got after. Imagine enduring not one, not two, but four surgeries without having the full picture of your injuries or giving informed consent. That was today's guest, Rebecca Kaduru's harrowing experience. Over a thousand stitches, a broken nose, a shattered eye socket, all from treatment gone terribly wrong. What do you do when in an instant, your whole world shatters? Not only your physical appearance, but everything you knew to be true. Your entire life's work, your belief systems, your purpose, completely upended and potentially gone forever. For Rebecca, in the blink of an eye, a severe accident in Uganda left her grappling with trauma and the fight to reclaim her identity. Yet, this remarkable leader did more than persevere. She transformed adversity into empathy, reshaping her approach to work-life balance and prioritizing the things that matter most. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a show about hope and possibility on the other side of pain. And today, about navigating life's most unpredictable storms. Here's my conversation with the determined and resilient Rebecca Kaduru. Hello, Rebecca, and welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you. It's so great to be here with you. How would you introduce yourself to our listeners? I introduce myself as a mom, someone who is really career-driven, really proud of what I do for a living. I'm currently the president of an organization called the Institute of Sustainable Communities, which works at the intersection of climate change and equity. And then I've had some different kind of things that have happened to me in life and am proud of how I've been able to push through them. And I think very kind of empathetic because of it to the people in my life. I love that. Beautiful introduction. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about the backdrop of your childhood, your upbringing, and who you were growing up. Yeah, I was um, born and raised in a small Silicon Valley town called Los Gatos, California. I was an only child until I was five um, and just, you know, look back and have really fond memories of my childhood. We traveled a lot. My dad worked in global sales for a semiconductor company, and we were able to kind of travel internationally, go on family vacations, which was something that was just a big highlight for me. And I think, you know, later in life made me more willing to travel. I had a younger brother who was born when I was five, who ended up um, passing away when he was six months old due to some uh, medical complications from a pretty simple routine procedure he was having. And so I think I just grew up always knowing that 
I could have whatever I wanted and put my mind to and that life is really precious and short and built up maybe a shell from a younger age at what it takes to keep pushing and persevering through just challenges that life throws at you. What eventually, as you're growing up, sort of coming of age and becoming a teenager and a young woman, tell me a little bit about that time period in your life and what would lead you to your work in East Africa? Yeah. So I was a big athlete all through elementary school, middle school, high school. I fell in love probably when I was 12 or 13 with volleyball and kind of just told myself, I'm going to do whatever it takes to be able to play volleyball at the top college level. I played volleyball five days a week and we would play games on the weekend and it was my best friends. And now where I sit in life, it seems kind of silly that how much sports can take over your who you are as a person, but it really was what was most important to me. I set this goal for myself that I am going to play volleyball at the division one level for a top 25 team. And that was just all I could see for myself. And I was bound and determined to make it happen. Well, I love the specificity of that goal, right? How clear you were on exactly the path and what you were working towards and moving towards. And did that happen? Did you go and play at D1 in a top 25? I did. Yeah, I did. And one of the really positives about that was that it afforded me the chance to travel and study abroad while during my last two years of school. So it sounds like very early, your family's traveling and international travel instills the spark in you, and then which you would are now returning to. When would you dive deeper into that calling and that passion of travel and of of living and working in different countries around the world? I think during after my junior year in college, I signed up for a study abroad uh, summer program that was in Tanzania. And I think one of the things that I really appreciated was how much innovation and how, you know, I talked about how I set goals for myself at an early age, how people really had goals for themselves, for their communities, and were working in such innovative ways to make change. And that was also the first time I was introduced to the concept of social enterprise. So after I kind of returned back to the U.S., I made the decision that I wanted to do a master's program and I wanted to make sure that I applied for a program that was at a school internationally. Rebecca ended up going to the American University in Cairo, pursuing a master's in international relations. But she happened to be in Egypt during the outbreak of the Arab Spring, and the school closed down. So after her first year, she applied for and received a fellowship to study social entrepreneurship at an organization in Uganda. She thought she would be in Uganda for maybe six months. She ended up staying for 10 years. My husband and I met 
at a fashion show, actually. A friend of mine from work was friends with a friend of his, and we met at the launch of African Fashion Week in 2010 in Kampala. And I think both of us knew pretty quickly that that we were going to get married. I think we both knew right off the bat that we were a good pairing and just really loved each other. And eventually you guys do have a shared vision and a shared dream of something you want to create together professionally. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So he early on told me that his dad, who had passed away when him and his brothers were young, I think he was five or six years old when his dad passed away. Um, Before he had passed away, his dad had bought a farm in the town that he was from, which was about four hours outside of Kampala towards the Congo border. So in a mountain range called the Renzori Mountains. And he always kind of had a dream of doing something with it, but didn't know what. And we were just kind of batting ideas back and forth and thinking, wouldn't it be fun to try to, you know, move up there and start this farm? It just seemed like it would be a nice quality of life. And and we were thinking so many people in Uganda, in Africa, earn their living off of agriculture. And so, you know, we definitely should be able to do this, knowing that, you know, we're both two college-educated, master's degree-level professionals. We definitely could make this work. And so we just kind of thought, let's do it. We didn't have kids. We were younger and didn't have a lot of money to try to do it, but thought we'd come up with a good business plan and uh, try to fundraise the money to get it started. So Rebecca and Eric started the farm with one crop, tomatoes, and they grew a lot of tomatoes. The production side was going well, but they were having a hard time actually selling them, which was puzzling to them because in their research, everyone said, grow tomatoes. Everyone always eats tomatoes. Eventually, they found out that the reason they weren't selling is because the markets were controlled by these traders or middlemen, and the politics were difficult to navigate. Meanwhile, on the production side, they were having a hard time finding workers who would consistently show up. And one of the things that we noticed was that oftentimes a man would show up, he'd work for a couple days, he'd disappear, and then his wife would come by and say, yeah, you know, my husband was working here. He, I don't know, went and spent the money playing cards with his friends or hanging out at a bar, but would you let me work? And so over time, almost all of the employees we had were women. And so we kind of put those two pieces together and out of also, you know, just a serendipitous individual we met who was setting up a project to support young women kind of came up with this idea that we could focus on high yield crops that don't take a lot of land and give young women and girls a chance to kind of take control and build their own agency over their income. And so we developed a company called Cat Africa And it works with girls who've dropped out of school to start fruit farming cooperatives. And so we set up this 
network across Western and Northern Uganda that would uh, grow passion fruit primarily. And we would provide them training and resources and life skills and help them organize into savings groups and understand how to spend money and how to take care of yourselves and your family and invest properly. And then we would buy all the fruit back from them and had container-based mobile processing facilities. And so we would process it into fruit pulp concentrate and sell it on to um, big juice companies. And so we kind of set up this big social enterprise that to date has worked with, I think, 10,000 girls and their community members. We, um, you know, eventually got married, decided that we wanted to start a family in 2017. Um, so we started the business in 2012. And in 2017, we had my daughter. I think I had a moment as a new mom, which, you know, as a new mom, I feel like having a child is very identity shattering is the best way I can describe it. And I had a moment where I really panicked about both of us being self-employed, working for ourselves, social enterprise, and also just felt just the stress of, I think, living overseas, being earlier in our career, just this the stress of knowing that we had to pay our own paycheck at the end of every month and what would happen if we couldn't do that anymore. And so I started working for a San Francisco-based health equity organization, helping them set up their East Africa operations. And, you know, now in hindsight, I was really burnt out. When Rebecca's daughter was 14 months old, they were driving from Kampala back to the town they lived, called Fort Portal. It was about a four-hour drive. They were about an hour into the drive when it happened. A drunk man ran into the highway. They were going at a fast speed. It was a terrible car accident. Luckily, Rebecca's daughter and her husband were fine. But Rebecca was severely injured. Our car ended up rolling about, I think, seven or eight times, and we landed in a tree. And immediately, people rushed out to see what happened while my husband was trying to get help. You know, he said he first looked back and saw my daughter was asleep in her car seat. He didn't know if she was alive or not, but then he saw her kind of like readjust herself. And so he was like, okay, she's fine. And then he tried to turn to getting me out of the car and the car was actually on my arm. So my arm had gone through the window and was on its side on my arm. So he couldn't get me out. So he called some people over to help him turn the car back upright and noticed at the time that so many people had come out and they were actually just stealing all of our stuff out of the car. And he couldn't really be concerned with that. And so, you know, he saw a micro bus coming by. That's a common way people travel between cities in East Africa. And he waved it down and and someone got, someone actually saw him uh, from the town that we lived in. And that person got out, tried to, you know, help grab the stuff and flagged down just a random passerby who ended up, my husband got me into the back of the, the car, this random person's car, and they drove me to the nearest hospital, which was a regional referral hospital. And 
So there's different tiers of care in Uganda, and this is the highest you can get outside of a, a main city. It's supposed to be where you go for emergency surgeries, if you needed an emergency C-section or an appendix removed. And so my husband at the time felt like, oh, th- I'm so thankful that we're just like a couple minutes away from this type of facility. And um, he got there and there was no doctor. There was some nurses. He said, I need help. I need you to help stitch her up. I need an ambulance. We need to get her back to the capital city. And they had nothing, not even gauze. And so he ran out to a local kind of pharmacy and bought stuff and came back. And just a nurse in the lobby of this hospital just attempted to stitch up my face to get it to stop bleeding, wrapped it in gauze that, again, he had bought. And then they said they had an ambulance. And so he went to ask the ambulance how much they would charge him to drive us to Kampala. The ambulance gave him a price, which he didn't really care what it was. And then he said, okay, great, meet me at the hospital. And the guy said, oh, I don't have any gas. Uh, So then he had to drive with the ambulance to um, fuel it. So he did that as well. Thankfully, he had cash on him. I, I don't know what would have happened if he hadn't. And then he got me in the back of the car and we drove towards Kampala. And I kind of regained memory sitting in the back of that ambulance. I said, what happened? He said, we were in an accident. I said, is our car okay? He said, no, it's not. I said, is our stuff okay? He said, no, it's not. And he said something. He said, you've asked me this at least 20 times. Um, And I have no recollection of previously asking it. We'd just gotten stuck and there's terrible traffic getting into the capital city. And the guy turned around and said, oh, the siren's broken. And I just remember looking up and there was another micro bus kind of next to us stuck in this traffic jam. And it was like the whole bus, which probably had, I don't know, 16 to 18 people was just staring at me. Like they could not believe what they were looking at. And, you know, I know now from pictures, they were looking at this, you know, white woman in the back of broken down ambulance wrapped completely in gauze, covered in blood. And it was just like this moment where the look, I will never forget the look on this guy's face of how terrified he was just staring at me. I think I was in shock, like physical state of shock. So I was just sitting there trying to think through what happened. It doesn't, I don't remember the sensation of feeling like I was sitting for an hour. I just know that it took us a very long time to get through that traffic jam. And I can just see this guy's face. What I do know is I asked my husband, you know, where are we going? He said, we're going to this hospital that his friend's um, family owned. He said, I've called ahead. They have a bed ready for you. So we, you know, we really had all the resources possible to try to get to the best care. And then I remember just arriving to the hospital. They take me out of the back of the ambulance and they say, okay, we're going to get you into surgery. And I just remember looking at the doctor and I said, please get me a plastic surgeon. And I don't know why that was where my mind went in that very moment. And so they they took a minute and they stopped and they called. There's one plastic surgeon in the entire country. And they said, okay, it looks like your bleeding has stopped. He's willing to come in at six o'clock tomorrow morning. And by this time it was, you know, we're probably in the accident around 11 a.m. And by this time it's probably close to six 6 or 7 p.m. Um, he said he's willing to come in at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning to redo all your stitches. 
The next day, at 6 a.m., the surgeon came and took Rebecca back for surgery. She was there for around three or four hours. When she came out, her husband told her that they did over a thousand stitches in her face and fixed her broken nose. They said it was going to be a lot of swelling and a lot of time. But there was also more that needed to be done. So they wanted to have another kind of doctor, a maxillofacial surgeon, come in to reset a crack in her jaw. And so we, you know, went back into surgery and came out. And it turned out that what they had done was put multiple plates in an attempt to reconstruct my face. And so he showed me all these scans. He was like, yeah, we put this one plate here over your jaw. We did another one on the side of your face. And it was so shocking to get out of surgery and come to, and a few hours later, have someone go over the scan of all these screws they put in your face, because I did not have an understanding that that's what they were going to do before that happened. Um, and then, you know, two days later, I had to go back in for another surgery to move, remove the thousand stitches from my face. And, you know, at that point, I had a cut on my hand that was getting infected. And so they were going to re-clean out and re-stitch that wound. Um, and then during that time, you know, I woke up and I had stitches on that cut. So they had removed the stitches from my face and I had stitches on this wound on my hand, but I also turned my hand over and they had completely, all the scrapes I had had in the back of my hand the, had kind of made the independent decision to try to repair them. So they were scrapes that they then, you know, a plastic surgeon kind of came in and redid. And so I had all these stitches in the back of my hand and it had pulled the skin so tight that I did not have any range of motion in my fingers. And so it was just this like weird cycle of going in and out of surgeries. I ended up having four surgeries while I was there over, you know, a 14 day period where um, every time I went in, I came out with some procedure having been done to me that I had never consented to. And so I never really was told, like no one sat down and said, this is the full extent of your injuries. It just kind of kept coming out as I came out of, of surgeries. And, and, you know, at a certain point when I first got there, my husband said, don't fix anything. Just get her to the point where she can travel to the U.S. She's American. She has U.S. health insurance. And so we, there was never a request made to actually fix anything. It was just get her stable. And so I will share that about, I was in the hospital for two weeks and then when I got out, we flew back to the U.S. And my mom had come out to be with me while I was in Uganda. And while I was there, she just thought the whole thing was so weird. She's actually, you know, was in healthcare that she started calling around. And so we had scheduled a appointment. So, so one of the things that was happening is my face was what I thought at the time was very swollen. And they said, you just need to give it three years. It's going to take three years for the swelling to go down. But my eye, I was looking at my eye and it really looked like my eye had sunken back into my head. And they were saying, no, that's just the swelling in the soft tissue around your eye. Everything is fine. Uh, and between my mom and I and my husband, we're just like, something is not right here. And it was just, you know, constantly dismissed as you don't really understand the structures. So it's fine. Trust us. And so she made an appointment for me at this specialized eye institute at Stanford 
hospital in California um, with an ocular plastic surgeon. And, you know, so I went back, went into this appointment. He said, we need to do a scan immediately. I said, oh, I've already had all these scans done. And I gave him the scans that were done in Uganda. He said, no, we need to do a full scan. So he got me in immediately. And I'd say I was, you know, went in, got the scans. It doesn't take very long, 30 minutes or so. About three hours later, got kind of a diagnostic result. And the list of things that were broken in my face, it was like the longest report to read. I could not believe it. Coming up, Rebecca learns the real extent of her injuries for the first time and comes to a crushing realization. We'll be right back after this short break. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every story you hear, we donate $2,000 to our guest's favorite charity. For today's episode, Rebecca chose Hebrew Free Loan of San Francisco, a nonprofit that provides interest-free loans to help Jewish individuals in Northern California overcome financial challenges and pursue their life dreams. You can find out more about them at hflasf.org. So it turned out my nose was still broken. My eye socket had been repaired with these plates that this doctor in Uganda had put in, but he didn't line up the bones correctly. So instead of lining the bones up to grow back together, he had overlapped them and screwed them together. So they were never going to heal. And the entire internal structure of my eye socket had been shattered. And I later kind of reached out to the hospital and was like, what happened here? And the maxillar facial surgeon admitted, he said, we don't have the technology to fix that here. So I just decided not to tell you about it. That was when we made the decision that we were going to relocate to the U.S. Because my doctors at Stanford were pretty honest that this is like a solid year worth of structural recovery to try to fix this. They didn't know how well they were going to be able to do it. And one of my doctors said, he said, I've never seen so much structural damage to a face without damage to the brain and the eye at the same time. So he said, I can't actually tell you if it was the accident itself that caused this or the care that you got after. And was that, you know, now in the moment, I guess, unpacking that additional level of trauma, the emotionally processing that, how are you experiencing that in real time? Um, I mean, based on what we had also just spent the last decade of our lives doing. It was really devastating. It was this realization that like is, here are two people that had all the resources in the world. You know, we could fuel the ambulance. And I remember my my husband called my mom and he said, she said, what do you need? And he said, I need you to wire me money right now. Like my wallet was stolen. I don't have access to cash. And, you know, we were just able to go and cash pay at this really expensive hospital where he could call ahead and get a bed. And it still didn't matter. And it was like, we just spent, you know, 10 years building this program for um, young women 
And we had this curriculum that was about health. And it was like, where do you go when you need help? And it literally says in the curriculum we taught, you know, if you're pregnant and you're having an emergency, you need to get yourself to one of these district level health facilities. And it was just like this crushing realization that, oh my gosh, it doesn't matter. I mean, I survived because I I lived because we had the resources and my husband had the knowledge to go buy that original stitches and gauze. But even with all that, it didn't matter for the outcome. Even with me saying, I want the plastic surgeon and knowing to even ask that question, who knows what would have happened if I had not asked for that, but um, it didn't, it didn't matter. And it was just like really devastating. And I think, you know, initially I really felt this push to be like, I need to make this matter. I need to write about this or blog about this. Or people said, you know, make sure you keep a journal. And and I'm not super active on social media. I don't have an Instagram, for example. And I grappled with myself a long time. Like, should I be documenting this and sharing this story publicly? And, you know, this is real life for women all over the world. And I, you know, I went as far as buying a notebook and a pen and I could never actually write anything down because it just made it too real. And I don't have the mental bandwidth to recover, to be who I need to be for my daughter and my family. As I said from the beginning of of chatting with you, Kimmy, I have always been super goal-oriented. And it was like, I cannot let what just happened to me derail the long-term life goals I have for myself and my family. And I just realized like I didn't have the mental bandwidth to kind of take this on for everyone and, and turn this into a live social media feed of my recovery. Yeah. And I want to talk about that because I heard, I'm, I'm actually really curious in this conversation to touch on that a little bit more, sort of this push to be vulnerable and to immediately make make meaning of things and make meaning of something immediately while you're still in the process of healing and recovery. And it makes sense to me that you're heartbroken for this country you loved, for the acts that you you were working towards and believing that girls and women should have access, including to quality health care. And not only are you going through a crisis in your life with the physical and medical recovery, but that heartbreak for this country that you clearly cared about and had a deep connection to. And meanwhile, I know your left eye literally fell into your sinus cavity. There is 10 reconstructive surgeries happening, and your face is not the face you have identified with your whole life. Talk to me about that year, those surgeries, and grappling with with your physical identity and your face. Yeah. So it was definitely, it was very weird to look in the mirror and not really even recognize the person looking back at you. I remember, you know, that first appointment where I met with ocular plastic surgery at Stanford, and he was very diplomatic. He said, "I I don't know exactly what it is, but I'm sure we can get you some improvement. That was the line he used. And I just said to him, I just want to be able to walk into a room and not have people turn and stare at me and say, oh, what happened to her? It was just 
it was really hard. So, you know, on top of, I talked about how, you know, being a new mom kind of shifts your identity. And, you know, I've mentioned to you, Kimmy, that I've been, for me, being goal-oriented, particularly with my career, is something that going back to high school or even younger was, is how I've operated. And so at the same time, I had started this job just a few months before and went back to them and said, hey, this is what is happening. And it doesn't seem like I can go back anytime soon. Would you be, this is 2019, would you be open to a remote working arrangement? Which we've learned since 2020 that everyone can go remote, but you know, at the time they just said no. And so I not only lost my like physical identity looking in the mirror, I lost, there was so much that I felt like I had worked so hard for. And in the U.S., your health insurance, so much of your survival is dependent on your job as well. And so it was like losing all of that at one time was just really challenging. And I think I became really focused on how do I get the surgeons and the help and the care that I need to try to I don't want to say fix this. They set my expectations really well when that line, as I said, I think we can get you some improvement, but how do I get back some sense of my identity? And that identity was both the physical way that I looked and also, um, you know, I wanted to be able to show up to work every day. I wanted to be able to replicate some sort of semblance of what was a normal life for me. I didn't want to just sit there sad, waiting for insurance approvals and not looking the way that, you know, not recognizing how I looked. I remember I said something to my mom. I said, "Um, you just, you don't know what it's like to just look in the mirror and not recognize yourself. And she kind of, you know, chuckled herself a bit. And she said, oh, that's what aging is. Um, and now, I, you know, I can kind of, we can laugh about it. But at the time, I didn't know, not would I even look like myself, but would I look, you know, quote unquote, normal for whatever that means. But normal was, you know, someone without a broken face. Would I be able to see correctly? I had a lot of nerve damage to my face. You know, would I be able to move my face correctly? Would I... Even things as simple as drinking out of paper straws is really challenging when you don't have, um, like one of the lasting impacts has been I don't have the nerve sensation in my lips. And so it was even like having to relearn to drink from a straw. And so at the time, you know, I can look back at it now, but at the time I didn't know if any, what the result of any of those things would be. One of the things I heard you say, which I thought was really interesting, um, so often friends are trying to be helpful that they would, you know, say to you, oh, well, looks don't matter and you're alive and your, your daughter's healthy. This is, as you said, your your face, your identity that had stared back at you in the mirror, the thing that lit up when you walked in a room. So how are you reconciling that? And emotionally, are you withdrawn? Are you feeling depressed? Um, 
I had, you know, a lot of people, for even from the moment I woke up in the hospital in Uganda, who would say, oh, I'm so thankful you're okay. And in that moment, I was not able to feel thankful that I was okay. You know, I kind of thought, well, that's so easy for you to say. You know, you're thankful that I'm okay because it's easier for you not to have to mourn me. But here I am stuck having to deal with putting the pieces back together, like physically, literally building back the pieces of myself. And it's painful and it's tough and it's a long road physically and mentally. Um, There were times where it was just like, this might've been easier for me if I did not make it, right? If I wasn't the one bearing the recovery journey and it was other people having to, you know, I don't feel that way now. I went through just a cycle of that. I mean, there's just so many things you're thinking through. And yeah, a lot of friends to try to make me feel better during that process would they say things like, you know, don't worry, you're beautiful just the way you are. And it was like the last thing I wanted to hear. And I remember sitting with my mom and one of her friends. And, you know, as I said, my mom had already kind of made the aging comment and her friend said, no, you know, that's not true. She said, Rebecca, I am here for you. You do whatever you need to do to feel whole again. And I think that was easier for, you know, two older women to say, like, I relate to what that feels like, to like wanting to look the way you used to. Um, Whereas particularly my friends, it was like, we were taught in school about like, you just gotta be positive. You don't judge a book by its cover or it's the inside that counts. And, And she said, no, Rebecca, you know, you do whatever you need to do to feel whole again. And it was just so refreshing to hear someone finally say, I'm here to support whatever you need to do, not trying to make me feel better by saying, um, you know, what people didn't realize they were saying is actually they were saying, it's okay, you can just accept things the way they are now and we'll be fine with that, but not stopping and saying, what is it that you really want out of this? It was a difficult few years for Rebecca and her family. After the accident, she was in and out of the hospital in three-month cycles. Surgery, wait three months for swelling to go down, then another surgery. At the end of 2019, one year after the accident, Rebecca and her husband made the decision to permanently move back to the United States They were settling in to their new life in Nashville, Tennessee, and then COVID hit. And during that time, like many of us, Rebecca turned to podcasts to cope. And one in particular that she listened to, which by the way, I'm a huge fan of, is called The Happiness Lab with Dr. Lori Santos. And she had a guest on who would prove to be a lifeline for Rebecca. Dr. Lori had a guest on. His name was J.R. Martinez, and he was a soldier in, I believe it was Afghanistan, driving a uh, vehicle that um, rolled over a 
what's it called? IED? Is that what it's called? I, uh, yes. Explosive yeah. device. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. an IED. And he suffered burns over 90% of his body and had severe injuries and burns to his face. And he shared this story about being, you know, always kind of praised for being a good looking young person. You know, he had this identity of being in the military and being this young, strong guy. And he said he looked in the mirror and he just did not recognize the person staring back at him. And I just like heard his story and like crumpled onto the sidewalk. I don't think anyone saw me, but it was like for the first time I heard someone sharing my experience and the results are really different. I, most people would meet me today and never be able to tell anything happened. Everyone who looks at my original scans says they are so blown away by the results of how I look now. And we kind of joke, my husband and I, like went in and just came out looking like my face is frozen at 25 years old. Um, And we can joke like that now, but it was something even JR said in his podcast. He made a joke like, oh yeah, does anyone give you the permanent Botox joke? And it's like, yeah, my face is, it's just there. It doesn't move. You know, it had nerve damage. And I came out of it and I look I don't look exactly like I did before, but no, you know, that wish that I had of, I don't want people to stop and look at me walking into a building and say, what happened to that person? Um, You know, JR had a really different experience. And he, I think I really respected having come to the realization with myself that I did not have the bandwidth when this was fresh to be an advocate for change. You know, and he has really become an advocate for many people. You know, there's communities he represents, the the veterans community. You know, he's a he's an amazing speaker and an amazing person. And it was just so meaningful to hear that, his story. And I realized, you know, we all have our ways of coping with trauma and not giving yourself the expectation of, oh, I have to post on social media about this or I, I have to mourn the loss of my pre-trauma life in the same way that JR did, for example, by eventually over time becoming an actor and a public speaker. We all have our different way of recovering. And what's most important is recognizing that versus trying to fit yourself into a box. And so that just made me a bigger Lori Santos fan. Um, I had the opportunity earlier this year to meet her and go to a live taping of one of her podcasts. And I stayed after and I just shared, you know, I just want to share with you. I had this really crazy thing happen to me. Your podcast with JR changed my life. Listening to someone else having gone through a similar experience to what I had gone through. Also being able to compare and contrast and just think through the different ways people handle trauma and come out of the other side of it. And then her producer reached out to me about a month or two later and said, hey, would you want to meet JR on the show? And it was, it was so crazy meeting him. I loved this so, so much as a storyteller and a podcaster because Sometimes it feels cliche or almost cheesy when we say your story matters. These stories make other people feel less alone. And this notion that I talk about that 
they go out into the world and you have no idea where they land and the impact they make. And I have this core belief that they find the people that need it most. So when I heard you talk about being on a walk, listening to a podcast, hearing JR's voice and falling to your knees, it to me it was this illustration that this thing I believe is actually true, that it works, that it changed you, that JR changed you and and that show was the conduit. So I just personally loved it so much. And as you said, I I think there is this pressure that everybody has to be vulnerable and share their cancer journey or their infertility journey. And that isn't the path for everyone, certainly when they're in the thick of it. But eventually you, you would meet JR on the podcast and share your story. And I would love to hear about that, what it felt like to... She has hundreds of millions of people who who hear that. So what was that experience? Well, so that was funny. That was what JR asked me. He said, okay, so this is the first time you're sharing this story. How does it feel to do that in front of 100 million people? And I don't think I realized her listenership was that big. So, you know, I said, I, I don't know. We'll see how it goes. I actually missed the email from her producer that the podcast was going up. So I didn't know when it was going up. And all of a sudden, I just, like my LinkedIn, as I said, I don't have an Instagram, was flooded with people viewing my profile. And someone sent me a message and they said, I just want to say, I was so moved by your podcast. And, you know, one of the things I shared with JR is while it didn't motivate in me to actually open an Instagram page or open that journal and start writing, the experience of losing my physical identity coupled with feeling like I wasn't supported at the workplace and then feeling like my professional identity also went out the door changed something within me and the empathy that I now bring to managing team members, running an organization. And so for me, that's, I think, where it really manifested is like, I'm going to, I'm not going to let this trauma throw off my life path. I, I also needed health insurance. So I did have to go back into the workplace pretty shortly after this all happened. So I think I took probably six months off and then started looking for a job again after I'd had the first two biggest surgeries. And I just, it, that's what it changed within me. Like it's going to change how I lead people and how I support people, how I listen to what individuals are saying, what they're really asking for. You know, when people are asking for something or saying they need something, it's because they do, you know? And I think this goes all the way back to the work that we had done with out of school girls in Uganda. It was people asking for a chance and asking to be listened to and asking to participate. And so for me, that's really how it manifested itself. And I think maybe someone will hear this or of the, you know, 100 million people that listened to the Happiness Lab episode and just the number of people that reached out over LinkedIn and just said, thank you so much for, for sharing this. It was, it was really meaningful. And, you know, I said to JR and Dr. Lori, I said, I'm still not ready to turn myself into the global women's health advocate. You know, it's still really raw in that sense. And, and I used the word yet when I said that, and he called me on that. He said, you said yet, 
which means there's still, you know, he said, look, I'm 20 years out on this. So in 20 years, we might find that, that you might actually find that that is what brings you joy and that is your next step. And so it was nice to kind of talk through that with him and then see how many people reached out to me and just said, you know, I really appreciated hearing about your story. And, or, and it was a variety. It was people who work in global health who said, wow, that was so amazing. It was people who'd had a crappy boss who said, wow, it was just nice to hear someone who took an experience, so like such challenging life experience and channeled it into a different leadership style. But I think, you know, you're right. People, information finds who need it. And what was interesting about my story and that episode was people also pulled what they needed to hear from it. What has been the most healing for you? What are the things that have worked in your healing journey? I think one of the things... I try to really focus on is, yes, this horrible thing happened that caused us to uproot our lives and move across the world. And I know what I look like now. I recently, I would say earlier this year, maybe in March or April, found a neuro-ophthalmologist, which is the thing that figured out the glasses prescription I needed to be able to see correctly. So, you know, for the first time also in five years, I'm now seeing normal and just appreciating some of the little things. We wake up on Sunday mornings, my husband, my daughter and I, and we live about half a mile from a bagel shop and we like to walk or my daughter usually scooters or rides a bike. And usually I'm behind the two of them. They're riding together and I'm still walking the dog because I still every single day reserve at least an hour to go on these walks. And I just appreciate like looking at the two of them and being able to say, okay, you know, we finally kind of came around the corner where I feel just very at peace with us having life. So like that question that, you know, I said when it first happened thinking, well, I wish I hadn't lived through this because all I could focus on was how hard the recovery journey was going to be. And maybe I was just never going to look the same again. And that was hard to absorb. Well, now I kind of like walk the dog behind the two of them and say, you know, I'm so thankful that I figured out the ways to put energy into what I needed, not what other people expected from me to get to this point where I actually just enjoy walking to get a bagel on Sunday mornings. You know, I was thinking when we started this conversation and you talked about the loss of your brother and how that sort of closed you off in a sense, it's when I'm hearing you share now, it's almost as if this trauma opened you up in a sense. Is that fair? Yeah. And I would say I would almost push it like a bit further. I think everyone is equipped to deal with trauma in different ways. I think for me, having large doses of it, or, you know, whether we call that small or large, I don't know, but doses of it at different stages through my life, like, yeah, it closed it off. It made me, you know, very goal oriented, always kind of pushing forward and seeing the next steps. And and I do think I actually took that into my recovery. You know, I came very focused on this is the doctor I need to see. This is the type of insurance I need to get on. This is, so it was like, I just approached again, this as like stepwise, this is what I need to do to push through. And I think I was able to do that and able to hold on and push through and block out the noise of, 
but we think you should do it this way, or you should just appreciate the way you should appreciate what's inside and not the outside because it was something I had been exposed to from a young age. Um, And it's something we don't try to shield my daughter from either. She was a year and a half when this happened. She was from the time she was a year and a half until three years old was, you know, watching me in and out of the hospital. And it's not something we try to shield her from either. It's something we try to say, you know, life happens to people. And what matters is how you continue pushing through it. You know, the other thing we've talked a lot about, and I relate to this deeply, is being a highly productive and driven woman and professional. And I know when we spoke on the phone, this changed your relationship with productivity and work. So how were you changed in that sense? Yeah. So I st- just because of the nature of who I am and who I've always been, I'm still, you know, a pretty productive person. I have also become really good at putting boundaries around that. So for example, I work remote. I've worked remote for many years and set my calendar so that people can only go in and schedule meetings between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. That morning walk time is sacred to me. I really have tried to also know that I'm very career-oriented and driven, and I can set boundaries for myself around the times that I want to You know, I want to be there to get my daughter ready for school in the morning, and I want to be there to have dinner with her in the evenings. And I'm also pretty hard, not hard on myself, strict with myself about not working over the weekends. And one of the things I will share is I also, as much as possible, don't just say, because I'm the president of an organization, I'm the only person with the ability to do that. It's something that I also want to make sure trickles down to the entire organization or company that I'm with, the staff that I supervise. You know, I had pushed myself to work to the brink that it took literally going through a car window to get myself to stop and realize, you know, why am I doing this? Why am I living 24-hour flight away from my family? What is it that I really want? And so I think I'm very intentional with how I spend my time. And I actually noticed that it doesn't necessarily cut down on my productivity. You know, there's a lot of of research out there now about the four-day work week and different pieces. It actually helps me to say, I'm actually only going to work between 10 and 4. I don't notice that I actually have a drop-off in work, but I do have a much more much more appreciation for the time that I get to spend with my family. I really can do that morning walk to the bagel shop and appreciate that time instead of thinking, oh, shoot, I got to run home because I know I have a proposal that's due the next day. I've really worked hard on on kind of turning that off, and I really try to make sure that that echoes through across any workplace I'm involved in. So I always end by asking our guests what they want people to take away from their story. So in your case, if there is someone on a walk with their dog in the thick of their own life and struggling, what do you want people to take away? Or or what is the message or the lesson or the hope that rings most true to you based on what you've been through? Yeah, I think... Life happens and trauma happens to everyone. And I think pulling yourself out of the way 
society says that you should recover from something. Everyone deals with trauma. It's all different levels. It's meaningful to each individual person in their own way. And don't feel pressure for some sort of recovery trajectory. Just lean in to your intuition and what you need for yourself. And, you know, that's something that JR said to me as well. He said, you're only five years out of this. I'm 20. And so there's always someone that is one year ahead of you, five years ahead of you, 20 years ahead of you that you can try to look to, not as a way to say, how do I do this? But just as a reminder that I need to do what I need to for myself. I need to invest in myself. And at some point, hope is around the corner. And at some point, recovery will come. Thank you, Rebecca, for sharing yourself, for sharing your story. I've, I've loved our conversation. And yeah, I can't wait to share it with our audience. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And in the spirit of getting information to those who need it, is there someone who you think would benefit from hearing Rebecca's story? Hit the share button right now, wherever you're listening, and text this episode to that person. You never know the impact one story can have. And don't forget to tune in to next week's A Little Wiser, where we will talk more in depth about today's episode and how you can apply the lessons from it to your own life. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard from Podkit Productions. It sure is, Kimmy, but we couldn't do it without our associate producer, Tara Daigle. Aw, thanks, Erica. And I'd be utterly rudderless with nothing to edit or sound design without the lot of you. So until next time... Take care of yourself and each other. That's right.